Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 427. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Three little announcements before we get into the main show, mind you, but what it is, what a main show it is as well. But first up, don't forget, little reminder, Starship Sova is eligible for a Hugo Award this year in Best Fan Cast category. Now, voting closes 31st of March, so if you kind of, you know, if you think we're kind of might appreciate it, you know, <laughs> we deserve it, that would be fantastic. Please pop over. And do do the do the do the do the deed. Next up as well, I've got a note from Jeremy, which is kind of ties in with the kind of Hugo's and the kind of the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer. He says, "Don't forget, you can download the anthology Up and Coming, edited by Lisa Huang and Kurt Hunt, to get a million words free by over a hundred twenty authors and two hundred thirty stories." All these authors are eligible for the John W. Campbell Award for, like I say, Best New Writer in 2016. And you can get it, you know, in all sorts of kind of formats as well, Moby and EPUB. Closes again, it closes the 31st of March. So, you know, grab it while you can. If you pop over the front of the website, there is a link there, so you can just go straight to, you know, we save you the hassle. Big thank you to Jeremy for sorting that one out. And finally, if you could pop over to Beware the Hairy Mango, go to Donated Episode 4, Professor Nutty. This is one of Matt's, you know, the kind of Matt does the podcast, Beware the Hairy Mango. And this is a donated episode where someone, Parash Shalansky, has donated, you know, a little bit of funding to kind of keep Beware the Hairy Mango going. And Matt's done it in, in my voice. 
And it's, I swear to God, he's got all the mannerisms and everything. So pop over there. I'll put a link on to that particular show. And while you're there, subscribe to Be Aware the Hairy Mango and donate to Matt as well. And like I say, if he's doing stuff like this, man, I'm not even going to play anything because I want you to go over there and subscribe. But man, 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 when I, li- I listened to it, I was thinking, oh, man. <laughs> you got to go over. Honestly, it's just fab. So, without any further ado, I will tell you what's coming in today's show. First up is an interview I carried out with Mark Zastro. Mark is a freelance writer and wrote a, just a fascinating article for New Scientist, all about clone puppies. He was invited into a lab in Korea. And it just, it's just remarkable to be quite, it blows me away, to be quite honest. Then we have the main fiction, which is Intellectual Property by Michael R. Fletcher. Then right at the end, but by no means last, Amy Hirsch Sturgis with her second part of the Retro Hugo Awards. That's all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So the interview today, like I say, is with Mark Zastro. Mark is a kind of a science and technology reporter, freelance science journalist, and he was given this opportunity to go inside this kind of cloning lab in... Korea. Mark, then, can you tell us what this lab does? Because I think it's just a, a fa- you, you wrote a fascinating article, and you know, it's just I even thought this kind of stuff would be banned. Do you know? Ah, uh, well, it's uh, well, it's not in South Korea, and it's it's actually not in most places around the world. Um, but this Korean lab is definitely, I think, the most along in really making it uh, sort of a, a mass you know, production process. They've certainly, I think, cloned more dogs than anyone else. And so, basically, what they do, right, is that they um, you they can be hired. You you can pay a hundred thousand hundred thousand dollars U.S. dollars to have them clone your dog. And what you do is if your dog dies, you put it in your refrigerator to preserve the uh, tissue samples, right? And then you get someone to, or yourself, you cut out a a bit of of the tissue, of the skin, and you ship it off to Seoul. And what they do is they take out the cells uh, of that sample. They take out the nucleus. They extract it from those cells. And then they take a donor egg cell, right, of a domestic dog, and they insert the DNA from your dog into the cell, into the egg of the donor dog. And then they insert that, they inject it, I should say, into a surrogate dog, into a surrogate mother, who then gives birth to your cloned puppy. That's just, do you know what I mean? I mean, over here in good old Blighty, do you know what I mean? Like I say, when I first read it, I was thinking, God, you know, I don't think the UK at all is is into that kind of idea. Do you know? And <laughs> and really just for yourself, though, although it's kind of, you know, it's okay over there and so on, I would have thought you had a bit of a privileged access to get into somewhere like this anyways. Ah, uh, yes, yes. So they did, they, take, they took me on a tour of the lab. And so they um, allowed me to see the, Actually, the um, sort of the clean room where they actually do the cell extraction and injection process, and then also the operating room where they actually deliver these puppies. But I was not the only one there. Actually, they uh, at the time there were also guests from a local university. Um, I think some high-ranking officials from uh, this university. Um, so he does bring people in. He brings journalists in, and he 
you know, kind of shows off this this process. And it's, it was actually quite um, I was quite astonished at how cho- how well choreographed this was, because they actually wheeled out. A, they had two dogs prepped in the operating room, uh, one that was going to be injected and one that was going to deliver uh, a cloned puppy. And they actually Huang Usak, right, the um, the leader of this lab, very controversial figure um, for his stem cell research. He actually um, went right from one dog straight to the other, injected one, and then delivered the next one, uh, doing a C-section on it. So it was uh, a quite, you know, quite quite a show in a way. It's just, you know what I mean, it's just remarkable to be quite honest. And have I got my figures right? I know you quoted there, $100,000 per pup. And are they mm-hmm. doing something like 500 a day? That yes, well, they're creating 500 cloned embryos a day. Now that's not 100% success rate when they inject them at all. So it's not like they're cranking out 500 puppies a day. Um, but that's how many embryos they're making. <laughs> even you know, even you saying that you know, cranking out 500 puppies because you know I was kind of doing the maths and I was thinking, oh man, I wish I'd stuck in at school and went down that kind of you know that route because the you know just like you say a hundred thousand and I'm sure. Well, it, it's obvious people's going to pay that price as well. Mm-hmm. They have. In fact, they actually um, just—they uh, actually just held a contest in the UK recently for um, a UK citizen to have their dog cloned. So they got it for free. Uh, but they do have, I think, at, at this point, over seven hundred paying clients. And you know, as you can imagine, many of them are very rich. Many of them are, are in some cases, royalty. Um, you know, they don't disclose the names for you know, to protect the privacy of, of their clients. Uh, but it, it, there is sort of a – they have like a wall in the uh, in, in their lab with pictures, you know, like baby pictures, but they're puppy <laughs> pictures of all the puppies that, uh, that they've sent all around the world and their owners have sent pictures back. Right. Um, right. And so it's kind of like a you know, hall of fame of, of these cloned puppies. And they and when you look at it, you see – you think, wow, they're, they're really bringing happiness to a lot of people for a lot of money. But 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 happiness. Uh-huh. They're very happy. They're clone puppies. Oh well, I mean, it's like you know, kind of the, the pet industry is you know massive. Do you know what I mean? And like you say, when it right. when it tugs on your emotions as well, and there's a chance you could get an exact because that's what it must be. It must be an exact copy of your old dog. Do you know what I mean? You you, you, you I'm guessing you are. You're paying that kind of money. Tell us a little bit about him then, because I've read on on your kind of you, and I'll put a link on. So you can kind of go over and have a read of, of this article because it's just fantastic. Because you says he's went from hero to disgrace back to hero again. So who is this guy? So this guy, Huang Usak, he really is one of the most famous uh, and infamous scientists probably in history of, uh, well, of modern Korea. He uh, first made headlines back in 2005 and 2006 because he was uh, he had claimed to successfully create embryonic stem cell research. So you probably remember 10 years ago, embryonic stem cells were a big deal. Many people thought that um, by taking these stem cells early enough in development from embryos, they can turn them into any other cell, any other kind of human cell. And so you could potentially grow replacement hearts or uh, livers or whatever in order to, you know, to, to help people if they need a transplant. So the sort of regenerative medicine was a big deal. It still is, but we've now moved on to a, a, a most people moved on to a different technology in order to make them. That's pluripotent stem cells. Um, but at this time, embryonic stem cells was considered to be the, the next big thing. 
But it turned out that he had actually fabricated a lot of his data. And he, this was a huge scandal, both in the scientific world, and I'm sure many, many people remember it. Uh, it was certainly a huge deal in Korea, where he basically, uh, although all, all the scientific review panels said, this is a fraud, so many people in Korea were so invested in the idea that he was this national hero uh, that they still supported him. And so even after he lost his job, uh, even after you know the international community shunned him, he was able to get funding in order to build what is now his private lab, Suwon Biotech, which is n- this lab now that uh, clones dogs. Well, that's that is kind of remarkable. Like I say, you know, he's he's in disgrace, and yet still he's got the kind of he's got the oomph, shall we say, to kind of to go around and kind of raise capital to bring in this lab. Oh man, that's just mm-hmm. and, you know, and he has the connections in order to bring in these you know these guests like the, from this university that um, that the people that I was on this tour with, right? He's bringing them in to see uh, what, to see what they're doing. So he's still able to form collaborations and he gets a fair amount of funding from the local, uh, not so much the federal government, the um, the national government, but the local provincial government in Korea. I mean, I, I'm just surmising. Why do you think he kind of fabricated? Do you know what I mean? Because it looks like he kind of, he knows what he's doing. Was he just not getting the results and kind of something along those lines and he had to prove his, his worth? Yeah, that's what he said. I mean, he said that the pressure just got to him, that, you know, he had um, achieved some some level of success, um, like cloning dogs. He actually got a lot of attention for, you know, cloning the first domestic dog. And, and that was a actual accomplishment and, uh, um, uh, and a quite impressive one. Uh, but to take it to the level of fabricating this data for human embryonic stem cells. And then the other thing was that he also committed several ethics violations because he essentially forced... Uh, there were allegations that he essentially forced some of his own lab members, his junior researchers, to donate their own eggs. So the woman working in his lab had to donate their own eggs, which is, uh, you know, not a medically trivial process. So, um, gosh, it was, uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you should have been writing like mad old articles when that kind of hit, that took off. Yeah, well, yeah. You also mentioned as well, because, you know, with all this kind of, you know, profit and industry and everything like that, but he's also got his sights on, I hear, the Ethiopian wolf. Now, this is, if I'm right in thinking, a bit of an endangered species. So he's going to kind of try and do some good. Is that right? That's right. This is kind of, um, you know, they, they uh, when I talk to the people at the lab, uh, they say this is really how they hope to use this technology to to benefit uh, humanity and also these these endangered species to benefit the world. So the Ethiopian wolf is an animal. It's a it's a cousin of the domestic dog, but it's a wild dog. So it, it lives high up in the mountains in Ethiopia, and there are by some counts less than four or five hundred of these animals remaining in the world. So they're very uh, you know very endangered. They're also isolated because they live high up in these mountains. Um, you know they're all on different peaks, essentially. And so that means that there's not a lot of genetic flow between the different groups. You've actually got populations of maybe only a few dozen animals. And so there is a danger um, that there could be a lack of genetic diversity that really threatens the, um, the future of these populations. There are lots of other things that are making them endangered in the short term, mostly having to do with us as humans, uh, you know, th- taking away their range and uh, taking away their prey base um, and the animals that they that they feed on. 
And also, uh, they're really susceptible to disease, especially diseases from domestic dogs. So there are all these reasons why it's endangered. And what the Huang lab wants to do is sort of bank all their cells. They need to collect samples from these dogs, which, by the way, is going to be very difficult because there are none held in captivity. So they actually have to reach some sort of agreement with the Ethiopian authorities to be able to collect dogs from the, uh, from the wild, uh, collect samples from these wolves, uh, and then bank them so that they could clone them in the future to repopulate the, the, uh, the species. And is he likely to get that permission? Because I know that's a little bit of a kind of touchy subject as well, isn't it? It is. It, well, so they're going through the process right now. They have an agreement with a local university to uh, try to uh, secure permission. But, you know, they're definitely not the first uh, outside group to come in and try to do conservation work. You know, there are the Ethiopian wolf has, you know, uh, been on the radar of conservationists for a long time. And there is actually an organization based out of Oxford, run by researchers at Oxford, um, that has been working with them sort of with more, you know, traditional wildlife management techniques, trying to make sure that they have the food that they need, the prey that they need, that, that humans aren't um, going to eliminate their habitat entirely working on the ground. And so now to have this Korean lab uh, get permission, it is going to be tricky for them. I, I actually don't know exactly where they are in the application process right now. They hope that because they have this agreement with this university that they will be able to um, convince the authorities to let them uh, capture a wolf in order to get a sample. First, they have to, you know, first they have to prove that it works because they've never cloned an Ethiopian wolf before. They've done domestic dogs and they've done other wild canids, other kinds of wolves as well. But every species is a little bit different. So is there anybody kind of going up against them to kind of not go down this kind of cloning roof for the Ethiopian wolf? Or are, are most people kind of happy? We just need to kind of get through the red tape. So the group at Oxford, they're, um, you know, they're actually a little bit worried they're, that the Ethiopian government or that governments anywhere around the world in, where there are endangered canids that um, this lab could potentially clone, they're worried that it would be a little bit of a distraction. Um, you know, they don't have necessarily anything against the technology itself. Uh, and it could be very helpful as a last resort, they say. Uh, and, you know, if it ever went fully extinct and you needed to de-extinct it, um, you know, it doesn't hurt to have uh, these, these cells banked away. But in terms of the political environment, right, they say they worry that um, scientists will come in here and they say we've got fancy science in order to cure all your problems. Uh, they worry that they're not going to get the kind of support they need from the government to do the more traditional uh, conservation methods, right, to protect their habitats. So you also mentioned as well that he's going to try and clone, is it the Asiatic wild dog? Is it the dohol? I don't know how mm -hmm. to pronounce that, oh. but you say it's going to actually, right. this will test his, his, actually his skill as well, because this one's a little bit more difficult. I don't know if you could just like to enlighten where on that. Yeah, it's actually, you know, it's related to the domestic dog as well, but it's actually classified in a separate genus. Um, so the further away it is from the domestic dog, uh, the harder it is. Because remember, the, all of the surrogates are going to be domestic dogs. They're going to be, you know, whether it's a dole or an Ethiopian wolf, it's going to be born and, uh, you know, it's going to gestate inside 
a dog. And so it's a little bit uh, tricky to make sure that the reproductive cycles match. That's the hardest uh, part about this, especially because, you know, dogs, the reproductive cycle is kind of, uh, it, it's tricky, right? They go into heat, they're not in heat. It's, it's, uh, it's, that's actually what makes it so tough to, to do just in the first place. So they do hope to um, clone the dole as well. Um, that's an animal where there are only about 2,500 left. And they also are under pressure from humans. In fact, they often get hunted by humans if, if, they, uh, kill, uh, if they kill essentially livestock. So uh, it's they're, this Korean lab, you know, they're really putting, they're just at the stage where they're starting to put feelers out and try to identify uh, animals that they can work with technically and also places where they can work with politically in order to really um, convince people of the of the use of this because a lot of traditional conservation biolog- biologists are are not yet convinced what I, what I kind of like as well mark is you, you when you said you kind of went in for a tour of it you actually said you got to meet some of the pups and you said they were quite friendly mm-hmm. you know what i mean they were kind of jumping around us but there was something just a little bit eerie about it well, what was that about oh absolutely it it's it was eerie to see them because i i saw two and right who were born at the same time uh they usually impregnate two embryos at a time and you know sometimes they're not successful but sometimes they are and so then you get two cl- clone puppies right they're essentially identical twins and so when i saw them they were right uh um sort of in uh an open kennel and they were right next to each other and so i'd I'd walk by them and they'd jump up uh up on the ledge of the door and you know they'd be just you know pawing at my arm and and trying to lick my face and all that uh they're about nine months old german shepherd uh cloned for the national police actually it was a police dog that the um, national police wanted to have copies of uh, i guess because it was it was uh, so so good at what it did and but the the mannerisms and just the way that they moved were so similar it was it was really really eerie they would jump up and then they would jump off uh sometimes at the same time always to the left side all at this just the same movements it was like watching you know a choreographed dance or something and uh the only way i could tell them apart was that one of them had uh, one ear, its left ear twitched up. It was per- perky ear, and it would uh, point up and, and twitch like a like a possessed antenna or something. Um, and, and that was the only way I could tell them apart. The even wilder thing was then I, I, you walk to the other side of the room, and they had two more pups also from the same dog, cloned from the same dog, but they were younger. They were only two months old. And I looked at them, and I looked back at the nine-month-old pups, and it was, I, you know, it was like literally a double take um, or quadruple take, <laughs> and it was it, w- it was wild. You know, it was like looking at 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 a at a growth chart or something. Um, and and they also one of them had this perky left ear, and that was the only way I could tell them apart either. Man, it's just like, it's fascinating, to be quite honest. Like I say, over in the UK, I just honestly didn't imagine this kind of thing was going on at all. Yeah, yeah, we kind of hear, you know, this kind of, the procedures there. But, you know, your lab over there seems to be kind of, and especially the police are are getting involved. You know, obviously they've got it like, or they've had like a fantastic dog, which they know is kind of perfect for the job. Why not? Yeah. 
yeah, they have uh, they have these clients in the police, um, in as, as rescue dogs, uh, and working with other government agencies. Um, I think they've also worked with a few police departments around the world. Um, I think you know to try to pilot these, um, but you know they're expensive. It's an expensive thing. So um, I think right now the uh, the lab is doing it sort of you know pro bono to try to work out agreements with them. Uh, but in the future, who knows? You know, it's, if, if this is a, a cheap, viable way to preserve, to preserve, uh, you know, really, uh, truly great dogs that have the aptitude that police departments need, well, why not? Money, no object, Mark. Would you? <laughs> would you get one? No object? Sure. Why not? <laughs> why not? <laughs> I, you know, I have very fond memories of my golden retriever when I was a child. Uh-huh. Um you know, unfortunately, she's long dead and buried. But um, you know, if if I if I could have, I totally understand why people want to do it. And if money is no object, then uh, you know, there, there's no, there's no reason not to. No oh, man, it's, just, it's fascinating. Well, I don't know. Would you? Would you? Well, see, I'm like we are like a total dog family. You know, at this at this I was gonna say, at this mm-hmm. moment, we've got two Dobermans and you know, a, like a little working cocker spaniel and. We know, you know, the two big Dobermans, they, they're getting on. And it's not that long. Do you know what I mean? Like, the, the lifespan of a dog's not that long. So, money, no object. Oh, I, I would jump in straight away. Do you know what I mean? It just Because mm-hmm. we know how, you know, how well these two Dobermans are. You know, they kind of brought away our kids and everything. And just to kind of, you know, obviously I'd want them, the, the originals to last longer. But if not, you know, right. I think I would, I would think I would kind of... Maybe not stomach a hundred thousand dollars, mind you. That might, um, that might kind of. But if money was no object, I think I would. No problem. Yeah. What do you think then, Mark? Do you know the future holds for this type of procedure. Do you know what I mean? Do you think it's going to kind of throughout the world now? You know, pass tests and get uh, made law. Well, you know. It- <laughs> I think more than the the legal issues, I guess the question is whether or not they can keep finding markets where this is going to be, because it is an expensive process, right? $100,000 per pup. Can they find other animals to commercialize this? Um, they do do a lot of research also with pigs and cows. So, for example, they're trying to help the Korean government to have a program to try to um, sort of help preserve a lineage of high-quality beef, Right, something like the Kobe beef uh, in in Japan, they're actually trying to clone these cows in order to help preserve that genetic line. Um, they're also trying to genetically modify these cows in some cases so that they can become drug factories in their milk. They can create certain proteins in their milk uh, that they wouldn't normally produce, but that could be used for medicine. What do you think the kind of future holds for the the man himself? Do you think his lab's kind of, it's just, you know, he's he's kind of, he's past the, you know, the disgrace things, put to bed there now, and he's he's only doing good? Well, there's a big, there there is a, um, that's a tough question. It's... (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I, I guess um, the, I think the true marker of, you know, whether or not we accept his research is, is whether his peers accept it and whether the, um, his fellow scientists accept it. And he is publishing a lot of his results now in peer-reviewed journals. 
um, you know, not like science and nature like he used to when he was, uh, you know, making big claims, but he is publishing and they do pass peer review. And a lot of people, a lot of scientists have mixed feelings about it, but some say, well, you know, if the work holds up, we should accept the work for what it is. Um, and, and not so much forgive him for what he's done, but just accept, accept the knowledge that he is producing. And I think that's, that's, that's the only way you really can look at it. There's no forgetting or forgiving, you know, the kind of fraud that he perpetrated. I, I don't think, especially when you look at the ethical violations. Um, but if he is producing knowledge that is helpful to the scientific community that furthers our knowledge, well, I guess, and he, and he's no longer committing these, uh, these violations, then, then we can accept it, I think. And, and most scientists are. Mark, it's just honestly, it's been fascinating having you on. Do you know what I mean? Like I say, as soon as I read your article, it was just like, oh, monument. I've just had to get in touch with you. You know what I mean? So thank you so much for coming on Starship Sofa. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me, Tony. Really appreciate it. There you go. Big thank you to Mark for coming on and kind of just giving me a little insight into that. You know, and like I found out, you know, it, a lot of countries throughout the world, you know, do this cloning of puppies. And do you know what I mean? It's just... <laughs> What next? What next? Mark, thank you so much for coming on Starship Sova. So next up is the main fiction, and it's Intellectual Property by Michael R. Fletcher. It was originally published in Interzone. Michael R. Fletcher is a science fiction and fantasy author who lives with his wife and daughter in the endless, soulless, suburban sprawl of North Toronto, Canada. His hobbies include... Well, he doesn't really have any hobbies. He likes death metal. Does that count? His first novel, 88, a cyberpunk tale about harvesting children for their brains, was published by Five Rivers Publishing in 2013. Mike's second novel, Beyond Redemption, a work of dark fantasy and rampant delusion, was released by Harper Voyager in 2015, June 2015. The next two... Manifest Delusion novels have been written and are currently in various stages of editing. Mike is represented by Cameron McClure of the Donald Mass Literary Agent. I'll put a link on as well to Mike's site. This story is just narrated by Austin Leonard and just discovered him. And what a, what a kind of voice. Just perfect for this story. Do you know what I mean? You kind of, I give Jeremy the kind of nods up to say, well done. Do you know what I mean? Just excellent. Austin Learning is an Asian-American aspiring actor, singer, voice actor who is probably appreciate your comments and endless encouragement on his fine piece of work. And there's a link on Austin's Twitter feed as well. Just brilliant. brilliant. Thank you so much to everyone. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Intellectual Property by Michael R. Fletcher Read for you by Austin Learned. Capeci, Deep Cover Natu Operative. Dhaka, the capital of Gano Projatontri, Bangladesh. With a population of 13 million, the city was a madhouse. Buses and plastic Tata K cars spewed thick smoke from their struggling two cylinder aluminum engines. The heat and pollution were stifling, and the cacophony of car horns relentless. This place was more than enough to drive you mad. It was dirty, 
It was overcrowded. It was dangerous. I loved it. As a deep cover agent for a corporate espionage black ops unit with a North American trade union charter, I enjoyed a great many advantages, social and otherwise. Unfortunately, Natu law didn't apply here, and I had all the political clout of any one of the city's half-million rickshaw drivers. Maybe less. Scratch that. Definitely less. Due to a sparsity of legal constraints, DACA had become a hotbed of gray market research and development. Officially, the Pensiero Corporation's DACA facility was researching advanced biological computers for medical usage. Little DNA spies looking for naughty chromosomes. Everyone born in anything better than a third-world country had a biomed. Me included. But Pensiero had strayed into far darker corners than those advertised in their glossy investors' reports. They'd been purchasing children, stolen from the crush of DACA's crowded streets, for use in organic computer research. I'd infiltrated the facility. I'd seen the neat rows of shucked brains floating in their support tanks. All I had to do now was connect the dots, steal the research, and topple Pensiero. But there was a problem. Anomi, Pensiero Research Scientist My body kicked me awake with no regard for the fact that I desperately needed at least two more hours sleep. Awake before the alarm. Sad. I tried not to think about the day ahead. I tried not to think at all. Just go back to sleep. Was it Friday? Thursday, I muttered, pushing a hand through tangled blonde hair. Luckily, you are only crazy if you talk to yourself in public. As long as you do it in the privacy of your own home, you're perfectly sane. My mother's mantra. Though it was my father who talked to himself. I surrendered to the inevitable and rolled out of bed. I'm in my mid-twenties, have never exercised a day in my life, and am petite and slender, almost muscled for my small frame. My father always said it was good genes. I guess he would know. He picked them. I was fat as a child. My parents, wealthy software engineers who thought they could debug me the same way they fixed code, decided to cure me of that social embarrassment. A little recompiling of the recombinant. They upgraded my biomed. My urges and hungers were monitored and strictly controlled. Looking at sweets made me feel ill. I could tell how many calories were in a piece of Texas-shaped chicken byproduct by looking at it, and my body wouldn't let me eat a calorie more than it needed. My parents never understood why I didn't thank them. I'd happily kill them both for a chocolate truffle. The biomed was just another step in my parents' life plan for their only child. Prenatal genetic manipulation came first. Then a lifetime regimen, 
of advanced nootropic drugs, cholinergic receptors, and acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. For my twentieth birthday, they paid for my memory socket surgery. The socket wound monomolecular filaments throughout my frontal and parietal lobes, basal ganglia, and hippocampus. Memories created while a memory plug was inserted in the socket were scrambled and could only be accessed when that same plug was worn. I think they saw me as a favored investment in their portfolio. Why would anyone want this? The socket, in combination with my education, guaranteed me a job in pretty much any cutting-edge research facility. Those software engineers certainly understood the importance of intellectual property rights. They wanted everything for their daughter and pushed hard to get it. Oh, how they spoiled their baby! I slipped into a pair of shorts and a T-shirt and padded barefoot into the kitchen. Breakfast was a single raspberry-flavored bar of seven wholesome grains, 150 calories, and a cup of semi-sweetened tea with two tablespoons of 1% milk, 32 calories. My biomed ensured that I ate many small meals throughout the day. I was never quite hungry, never quite satisfied. Last week I'd managed to fight past the biomed's programmed revulsion to buy a Snickers bar, 57 grams, 271 calories without throwing up. I had been unable to actually eat the Snickers. It still sits, calling my name in its velvet caramel voice, on the counter where I dropped it. Thinking about it made my stomach twist, and my mouth water. It was confusing. As an adult, I could have had the biomed reprogrammed, but a lifetime of parental programming combined with the biomed's more insidious Pavlovian training, fostered a deep-rooted fear of being fat. I lost sleep to nightmares of gaining weight without its constant guidance. By 7.30 a.m., I'd laced up my hiking boots and, air filter mask in place, was walking to work. Head down, I waded through sweltering smog and poverty. I ignored the supplicating hands of beggar urchins, and the holographic advertisements which overlaid the real world in a three-dimensional assault to my senses. To the north, I could see the Jatiyo Sangsad Baban, the National Assembly Building of Bangladesh. From this distance, it looked like an old Kandu nuclear reactor. Most mornings I traveled with the crowd, a minnow funneled towards my destination in a river of sweating humanity. Today, I fought my way upstream. A gaunt family of six ran past, stained air filter masks in place. Mom was clutching a dead koala bear. They were being chased by another equally thin family. This was odd, even for Daka. I glanced down at the computer installed in my arm as a teen. What the hell is going on? Google Interactive verified my GPS location checked local news sources, public and private, and touched base with other G.I. users in the area. There's a food riot, G.I. told me. The public zoo is being mobbed and animals stolen for food. Seriously? In response, it showed me pictures, uploaded from cell phones and other G.I. users, 
of rioters slaughtering zoo animals. Most of the pictures had been taken by the people doing the killing. The army is on the way, G.I. said. The Google safety recommendation is to move to a safer distance. It suggested several routes, avoiding both the mob and approaching military police. Somewhere to the east, I heard the crack of small arms fire. I arrived at Pensiero a few minutes before 8 a.m. The guard nodded distractedly as I entered the building and approached his desk. Morning, I said, stating the obvious in that way we do. He nodded again and pushed the retina scanner towards me. Name? I answered, staring into the scanner. Then a DNA sample, fingerprints, voice pattern, and stress analyzer. What do you call a Wookiee with an ass fetish? The guard asked. What? Just measuring neural activity. He looked embarrassed and shrugged. I don't write this stuff. After the security hallway, which included a body search that reminded me how long I'd been single, I was allowed to enter Pensiero's hollowed blue halls. A bored Bangladeshi woman in a collegi-embroidered abaya slid a small plastic bag through the rotating section of bomb-proof window. The plug looked remarkably like the hearing aids of the previous century. I hesitated for a moment, before inserting the plug in the memory socket hidden under the flesh-toned dust cover just behind my right ear. There were always rumors. I'd heard that some plugs held instructions and could tell the brain to produce and store neurotransmitters, like dopamine and gamma-aminobutyric acid, giving the subject heightened control over their central nervous system. The thought of letting people mess with the inner workings of my mind gave me the screaming willies. My parents had done enough of that, thank you. I frowned at the memory plug resting in the palm of my right hand and thought about gamma-aminobutyric acid which played a role in neuronal excitability and regulating muscle tone. Gabba Gabba, I said, and plugged in. Blink. Standing in the same blue hallway holding the plug in my left hand, a different Bangladeshi woman sat behind the bomb-proof glass, staring expectantly at me. I dropped the plug into the receiving tray and headed for home. The security gauntlet was just as demanding on the way out. Strange questions, more pokes and prods. By the time I made it out of the building, I was stumbling with exhaustion. Ten hours had passed in that blink. My arms and legs ached, heavy with pooling lactic acid. Capeci. Deep cover not too operative. I was royally fucked. The man I'd spent the last year turning got greedy. It would have been bad enough had he just demanded more from me and my Natu handlers. But he wasn't that bright. Were he one of the plug-wearing drones working in the research wing, I could have simply knocked him on the head, popped his plug out, and destroyed it. One good stomp, and all memory of our dealings would be gone. Would that be murder? I don't think so. He would still be alive, 
but whatever differences existed between plugged him and unplugged him would be destroyed. Sure, after years of being a plugged employee, a person might become radically different than he was, but it still wasn't murder. Right? Unfortunately, he was high enough up the food chain he didn't wear a plug. Why this was always the case with upper management is a mystery. If anyone knew enough to be dangerous, it was the old white guys at the top. The same ones who thought themselves too damned important to wear plugs. What really pissed me off, what really got my soy goat, was that this guy was perfect. He knew enough to sink Pensiero, and he was a self-serving greedy son of a bitch. So why the hell was I surprised when the greedy bastard turned out to be untrustworthy? Apparently, he figured that if he was going to sell Pensiero's secrets to me, he might as well sell them to everybody. He was greedy and an idiot. Lovely combination. The double-crossing bastard spent all of Thursday in boardroom meetings, and I couldn't get anywhere near him. It was frustrating and scary. Had he already told the other buyers about me? Hell. He'd sell me out in a second, and, depending on where the opposition chose to come after me, yeah. Royally fucked. To make matters worse, the greedy idiot sent a couple of his security staff to scare me with a little rude language and macho posturing. Maybe he thought I'd just give up and go away. Not my style. Instead, I took a few seconds out of my busy day to beat the hell out of these two and sent them whimpering back to their boss. I wasn't too worried this would come back to haunt me, as the security personnel would unplug at the end of the day and go home wondering why they hurt so much. I sent a friendly message along with the limping goons. If you fuck with me, I will kill you. Anime Pensiero Research Scientist Thursday Evening I got home, kicked my shoes into the corner, changed into a pair of comfortable shorts and a t-shirt, and collapsed onto the sofa. My arms and legs were covered in dark bruises, but the pain was already beginning to fade. I barely even felt stiff anymore, just bone-weary exhausted. Things tingled down south, and my mind wandered to the kind of subjects that told me I'd be spending time with Mr. Vibrator in the near future, unless I did something about it. My last relationship lasted less than three months, and the sex had just started getting good. We'd finally made it past that awkward, embarrassed-about-our-bodies stage, and could focus on figuring out what made each other's eyes roll. I hadn't even managed an orgasm in the first two months, though not for lack of trying on his part. Sadly, it was doomed from day one. I was working at a government-funded research facility, and he worked for a multinational financial institution. Memory plugs were a necessity for both jobs. We'd meet up each evening and try to have that conversation all couples have at the end of each day. How was your day? he'd ask. I'd shrug and laugh. Dunno. Yours? Dunno. 
If you can't bitch about your workday, what the hell else are you going to talk about? There were days when I'd return from work sporting bruises, and he'd make fun of how clumsy I was, and we'd laugh about it. And then he came home smelling of expensive perfume. I made some joke about him going to a strip club at lunch with the boys, and he flatly denied it. Unlike me, he unplugged for his lunch breaks. Well, then? I asked. He shrugged uncomfortably. I don't know. I have no idea what goes on at work. If he meant it to be a joke, it fell flat. That was it. My doubts ate at me, and within a week we split up. It wasn't just that I feared what he was up to while plugged in. I couldn't be sure that my behavior was any better. I'd spent the last year plugged in eight to twelve hours a day. I didn't even know if I had friends at work. Christ, I could have been shagging someone every lunch hour and staying plugged just to protect my unplugged self. How can you have a normal relationship when you don't even know who you are most of your waking day? And that was two years ago, and I hadn't dated since. Pensiero was careful to let us out one at a time. They didn't want us meeting up after work and having unplugged contact. I don't know why. Put it down to corporate paranoia. It isn't like we could talk about what went on at the office. So here I was in Bangladesh. I'd never met any of my co-workers, and I rarely went out. I made a decision. I picked out a slinky black dress, with sleeves to cover the bruises. I wasn't going out to look for sex. I was going to find somewhere with people and music. Just expose myself so to speak, to the attentions of the opposite sex. I found some fishnet stockings that slimmed my thighs. Yeah, yeah. At 112 pounds, I understood that I didn't really have fat thighs. When you're dealing with leftover childhood trauma, the facts don't matter. I found a bra that actually managed to give me some cleavage. It's not about sex. I just wanted to look good and some earrings that suited my dark eyes. Hair up? Different pair of shoes. Hair down. Another pair of shoes. A long necklace to draw the eye to my... Ah, screw it. Who was I kidding? Google Interactive talked to my biomed to see what kind of mood I was likely in. Probably noted an abundance of hormones and suggested several dance clubs, based on its findings. Most of them looked a little too scary for what was to be my first real sampling of Dhaka nightlife. I scanned the list until I saw one populated mostly by other foreigners in Bangladesh on corporate work visas. I left my condo and flagged down a rickshaw bike, driven by a boy who looked far too malnourished to drag me to the club district in the Shahbag neighborhood. Along the way, G.I. kept suggesting alternate routes, but I ignored it and let the boy take whatever route he wanted. If it cost me a few extra euros, I didn't much care. The rumpus room was hidden on a small side street, between the University of Dhaka and the tent city that Ramna Park had become. The pristine white bathroom tile walls echoed with the wealth, glitter, and frenzied desperation 
of people who weren't sure who they really were. Women wore their hair down, and men wore their collars up, but I still knew the sockets were there. As I pushed my way through the crowd, I wondered how many of these people were co-workers. At the bar, I had two choices. I could order an alcoholic beverage, if I first convinced myself I had no intention of drinking it, or I could order a Diet Cola. My parents didn't want me to be fat, but apparently didn't care if I died of cancer. Diet Cola, I said to the bartender, a young Bangladeshi with lively eyes and a silk shirt hanging unbuttoned to display his chest and flat stomach. We're all out of the left-handed stuff, he said to my cleavage. I shrugged, and he passed me a lukewarm glass of flat diet cola. Fifteen euros, he told me. Over the next few hours, I danced with a few cute guys and managed to score some Afghani weed, which the biomed didn't have any problems with. My mouth felt like I'd been sucking dusty cotton swabs, and my tongue was thick and dry. None of that mattered. I was dancing, and I was high. Later, after I'd taken a break and downed a few more overpriced cancer pops, I checked Google Interactive. Most of the people here were on the GI network, and were taking pictures of themselves and the people in the bar they were interested in meeting. I am sailed about the room, like biodegradable confetti at a wedding. After pointing out that due to my limited social interactions of late, it couldn't promise its usual accuracy, G.I. gave me backgrounds on a few guys it thought I might like. It showed me their most recent hookups and the scores they'd received from previous dates. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Privacy is for old people. I had narrowed GI's suggested selection down to three possibilities when I was pinged. No IM was attached, which was a little odd and caught my attention. I checked the guy's GI stats and was amazed to find that he had no registered information and was the oldest person in the bar by thirty years. Even GI seemed a little appalled. I was going to ignore him when I noticed his name. Gedanke Geschäft, which, if my German was correct, roughly translated as thought business. Pensiero meant thought in Italian. Was there a connection?
Had someone from work recognized me? What the heck? I decided I'd talk to him, and bail if he got creepy. I instructed G.I. not to include this in my social networking profile, as I didn't want it making the assumption I was into mysterious older men. I found him alone, at a small round table covered in empty Corona bottles. Hopefully they weren't all his. He had a full head of dark hair, but his eyes gave away his age. His suit was expensive and gray. The fingers of his right hand drummed nervously on the tabletop, and his left hand rested on his lap under the table. Gedanke geschift? I asked. He snorted derisively and stared at me for a moment. It wasn't the usual look guys gave me. It was more like he was weighing consequences. I suddenly found myself thinking about the left hand under the table and the way he'd shifted his position as I'd approached. You plugged? he asked. Afraid to open my mouth, I nodded. I don't know why. Maybe I hoped I'd learn something. The Afghani weed wasn't helping. Gedanka finally nodded, his mind made up. Mistakes were made. I have what you want, but we have to be careful. There's another interested party who is very dangerous. With a start, I realized he looked more than a little scared. Contacting them had been a mistake, but it's too late now. We deal with what is. We have to move up the schedule. Gedanka's eyes were pleading. You have to get me out of here. Oh. Fuck. I was way too high for this. Tomorrow evening, Gedanka said. My place. He sent me his address. A private residence on Fuller Road, just south of the university. Bring the rest of it, and then I'm out. Gedanka stood and walked away without another word. I watched him fade into the crowd. Had he slid something from his left hand into his jacket pocket? What the hell? I asked the vacated chair. I could not possibly be dumb enough to be selling Pensiero secrets. Could he have mistaken me for someone else? He hadn't actually said anything specifically about me or Pensiero. I lost all interest in dancing, being high, and the possibility of casual sex. I pinged the cab company for a real taxi and was home in ten minutes. Friday morning. Awake before the alarm. Again. I rolled out of bed and groaned. My head felt like someone was trying to chainsaw their way through my cerebral cortex. That Afghani weed must have been laced with something potent, because I could remember some pretty messed up dreams. The night was a blur of Eurotrash dance beats spiced with a hint of curry. Gedanke geschäft. Thought business. Not a dream. I walked to work, and the streets were quiet, and stained with the blood of yesterday's food riot. G.I. kept me away from the few hot spots still smoldering with violence. As I walked, I scolded myself under my breath. You will go to work, plug in, and get yourself out of this mess. You will not 
Selpensiero secrets. You will not get me into trouble. It didn't escape me that I was now talking to myself in public. Capeci, deep cover not to operative. That greedy moron, calling himself Gedanke Geschift, and no doubt thinking himself clever, had contacted Anami outside of the Pensiero facility. What had he hoped to gain? Had he known she'd be there? Or was it just random chance? If only the girl hadn't lied about being plugged, this would never have happened. Gedanke was smarter, or a whole lot dumber, than I'd thought. Perhaps he was trying to send a message. Well, message received. I was going to have to kill Gedanka before he ruined everything. At best, this meant starting from scratch and finding another greedy Pensiero employee to turn. More likely, my cover was irreparably blown, and I'd be yanked out and sent on another job. Christ, I couldn't do it! Two years of work flushed away in an instant. The lies. The violence. The teetering tightrope walk of corporate intrigue with a dangerous multinational. Always alert. Always stressed over the times when it just wasn't possible to protect myself. I was deadly, and yet strangely vulnerable. Before the day ended, Gedanka Geschift would be dead. I decided to keep using the pseudonym, because I didn't want to think about the fact that this was a real human life. Anomi was both innocent and ignorant, and Gedanka's stupidity was going to drag her into this shitstorm, and probably get her killed. With the Natu Spec Ops upgrades to my biomed, I had inhuman control over my adrenal glands and mental emotional state. But thinking about the girl triggered all manner of startling reactions and memories. I could remember being that innocent, and longed for a return to a simpler time. And then it hit me. I didn't want to do this anymore. Over the last two years, I had often suspected I wasn't doing work of national security. More likely I was risking and taking lives, simply to protect the interests of those at the top of the Natu food chain. I wanted out. Unfortunately... For my kind, the only way out was suicide. I placed a call to Kadanka's desk, only to discover the bastard hadn't even come to work. Most inconvenient. There was little time and a lot to arrange. I finally reached him at home and set up a lunchtime meeting. Outside it was hot and sweaty. The street reeked of the latest bout of rotavirus-induced diseases, sweeping the population of indigent children. A makeshift tent city had sprung up around the International Center for Diarrhea Disease and Research, in an attempt to keep up with the deluge of young patients. A quick glance at the GI News report showed that over 500 people had been admitted to the ICDDR in the last 24 hours. I took the long way to avoid the worst of the stench. I needed time to plan. Anomie, I realized sadly, was the key. I thought about setting her up as bait to draw out the opposition, but it could go horrendously wrong. Who was Gadanka selling me out to? The Chinese? 
my EU counterparts? Whoever it was, I hoped they'd want to know what Anami knew before they killed her. The only way they could do that was to plug her in. It was a risky plan. As I turned onto Fuller Road, I stopped suddenly, forcing a mob of denim-clad university students to veer around me with politely muttered apologies. I couldn't kill myself. I frowned at the backs of the retreating students. Perhaps I could get Anomi to do it for me. Anomi, Pensiero Research Scientist. Another day sucked into the black hole of employment in a cutting-edge research facility. Had I talked to this Skidankageshift character and explained that I wasn't interested in being involved in whatever he had going on? Once home, I changed into the same old shorts and t-shirt. I pulled a six-ounce piece of skinless, boneless chicken breast, 187 calories, from the freezer and tossed it into the sink to thaw. A prefab box of romaine lettuce, 15 calories, with a single teaspoon of extra virgin olive oil, 40 calories, waited in the fridge. I wanted fries, and the desire made me nauseous. I was going to have dinner, and then curl up on the sofa to watch some 3V. I was not going to meet with this mysterious Gedankegeschift. I started pacing, walking and thinking out loud. What if plugged me is counting on unplugged me to do something? It was okay to talk to myself again. I was alone. What if I am counting on me to go to this meeting? I checked for messages. Nothing. If I didn't go, I wouldn't know if I was somehow hurting my plans. But if I did go, I could tell Gadanka that I didn't want to be involved. This could all be some colossal misunderstanding. Though I wanted to stay out of trouble, I couldn't deny that some part of me was excited by the thought of shady dealings and corporate espionage. Where did the law stand on this? Was unplugged me guilty if plugged me did something illegal? Could I be prosecuted for something I couldn't remember doing? I changed clothes again laced up my hiking boots, and was out the door before reason and logic could get in the way. I couldn't just let plugged me make all the decisions. It was time I made some for myself. How weird was that? While I walked, I thought about what Gadanka had said. Bring the rest and then I'm out. I'd been too high to remember everything, but that part stuck. What was I supposed to bring? Did he think I had something of his? Did I? The houses lining Fuller Road looked strangely out of place. Turning the corner was like stepping into another world. One moment I was surrounded by buildings that jumped madly between hypermodernity and classic Middle East architecture, dating back to the Ilyas Shahi dynasty, and the next I was on a lane of English-style manners. Gedanka's house was large and forbidding and made of hand-laid fieldstones. I thought about what my 350-square-foot shoebox condo cost each month, and what this place must be worth. Please don't be home. Please don't be home, I whispered, as I climbed the steps to the massive front door. I reached up to knock, and my hand stopped.
the door was ajar, and I could see through the crack into the foyer decorated in black and white marble. The lights were on, and the door was open. Hello? I called too softly to be heard. Nothing. Hello? I tried again, slightly louder. Still nothing. Did this mean Gadanka was expecting me? I whispered a soft, This is stupid, and pushed the door open. Inside smelled strongly of an aerosol disinfectant that burned the back of my throat, and was both incredibly familiar and totally new. Careful not to touch anything, I slid into the foyer. In the room beyond, I could see a dark leather sofa, thick carpeting, and a pair of man's shoes, toes pointing to the sky. I froze before moving forward. Turning the corner, I looked down into Kadanka's startled face. His eyes bulged wide, and I could clearly see where he'd been strangled with his own tie. The silk had cut so deep into his neck, I was amazed there wasn't more blood. Revulsion and curiosity fought for dominance. I'd never seen a corpse before, and was surprised at how little fear I felt. The room was still and quiet. Hopefully, whoever had done this was long gone. Wow. I'm taking this pretty well. Aside from talking to myself, that is. I felt far more calm than I thought the situation warranted. When I finally managed to drag my eyes away from the late Gadanka's gaping neck wound, I noticed the case on the table. It looked like a cross between a Samsonite briefcase and a panzer tank, and sat open. Walk away, I said as I tiptoed to the case and peered inside. For a moment, words abandoned me, and I stared into the open case. Can't be. Forgetting that I wasn't supposed to touch anything, I reached in and removed one of the neatly stacked yellow coins. It was surprisingly heavy. The coins were blank, except for a tiny one ounce, 99.9999%, stamped on both sides. What is it worth? G.I. clued in that I was talking to it. Gold is 7,000 ameros per ounce. It knew that I'd never become accustomed to thinking in euros. Based on the size of the case, there are approximately 200 coins within. That puts the value of the case at around 1.4 million ameros. It paused for a moment. The case itself lists for 900 ameros in the Samsonite catalog. What does that much gold weigh? I asked. Twelve and a half pounds plus the weight of the case. I could carry it out of here without too much effort. As I reached toward the case, someone gently cleared their throat behind me. It was the kind of unhurried noise that said there was no point in making a mad dash for freedom. I turned slowly, hands held out to show I was unarmed. The Bangladeshi police liked to shoot first, beat the corpse, and press charges after. Two men and a tall woman stood watching me, 
looking for all the world like they'd been doing so for several minutes. The men held tasers drawn but held at their sides, and the woman was armed with only her business-like skirt, gorgeous shoes, and an air of command. All three were dressed in blue Pensiero security uniforms. Hers looked like it had been custom-made by a skilled tailor in love with the female form. Suddenly, I wished it had been the police. So, it was you, the woman said with casual interest. I shook my head. No, I just got here. I didn't... Check her. One of the men nodded and moved forward while the other raised his taser to cover his partner. This really isn't necessary, I protested as the man patted me down with professional efficiency. She's clean, he announced. I'm not... Plug? the woman asked. The man spun me effortlessly and popped the memory socket dust cover. Nope. The woman nodded, unsurprised. She's not the one we want. Of course not. I told you. Yet, she finished. They piled me into the back of a waiting limo, and I sat wedged between the two men. The woman sat across from us and examined me like I was an offensive insect she'd found stuck to the bottom of her expensive shoes. The case of gold coins sat on the seat beside her, the elephant in the room we all pretended not to notice. Even in the limo's air-conditioned chill, I felt sweat trickle down my back. It didn't take long to realize where they were taking me. At Pensiero, we walked through security like it wasn't even there. We might as well have been invisible for all the attention we got. They marched me into a meeting room, with a dozen large leather chairs and a fully interactive digital table that wouldn't even fit in my condo. After sitting me in one of the chairs, the two men watched while the woman disappeared for several minutes. She returned all too soon with a familiar flesh-toned plug. I raised my hands not so much to keep her away, but rather to stall for time. There's been some kind of mistake. You've got the wrong person, I said, pleading. I didn't even know Gedanke. She raised a plucked eyebrow. Gedanke? The dead guy, I supplied helpfully. She moved forward to place her hands on the arms of my chair and stare into my eyes. Of course you did. I could smell her perfume, and for an absurd moment wanted to ask what brand it was. She smiled warmly as she brushed a hand through my hair to expose the memory socket. Her hand softly caressed my neck as she slid the plug into place. Blink. I was sitting on a plane in a massive first-class seat. The memory plug lay in the palm of my left hand, and there was a handwritten note clutched in my right. What the hell? I didn't care if talking to myself in public meant I was crazy. A couple of other well-dressed first-class passengers made obvious efforts to ignore my outburst. I became aware of my clothes, 
a dark gray tailored business suit, and a pair of black Manolo Blaniques that looked like a cross between a leather boot and an open-toed stiletto heel. The ankle-cuffed Dorsey line had obviously made a comeback. I started to read. Capeci. Deep cover not too operative. They took the bait. Of course, it didn't hurt that my pre-recorded, time-delayed message told them where to be and what time. Our eyes met, and the woman must have seen something, because she backed away, reaching for something hidden under her well-cut pensiero blue jacket. Dopamines, acetylcholine, and gamma-aminobutyric acid flowed like Niagara Falls once did. Time slowed as the programming on the plug interacted with my advanced biomed. My adrenal gland went bugfuck, but was balanced by a wash of other hormones. I said, Gabba Gabba, as I took her petite gun away, broke her arm, and sent her spinning into the nearest security goon. The two were still collapsing into a heap while I killed the other goon. Though the woman was obviously the most dangerous of the three, she was also the only one likely to know anything. I turned and was pleasantly surprised to find her already on her feet. The expensive designer shoes kicked aside. I could have shot her, but that would have been noisy. And anyway, I had a few questions that needed answers. There was no doubt in my mind that someone had planted her in Pensiero, much as Natu planted me. It was lucky I wounded her before she managed to get her own neural stew pumping, because she was fast and deadly. She fought like one of those born to Muay Thai kids on speed, and for a moment I was forced to retreat. She wasn't trying not to kill me, and it was to her advantage. The guy still on the ground finally managed to draw his taser and fire a hasty shot. I batted the trodes out of the air fast enough that my hands were barely numbed and sent them spinning in the woman's direction. She was forced to duck, which bought me enough time to kill the guy before he became more annoying. Men. Sheesh. The next time she moved into attack, I stomped on her bare foot with the heel of my rather unfashionable hiking boot and broke the bone. She was off balance for a fraction of a second, but that was all I needed to take her down. The fight lasted maybe seven seconds and made less noise than the Pensiero Research Facility's HVAC system. Once I'd immobilized her, which required breaking enough bones that even with her ability to ignore pain... She couldn't launch an effective attack. I asked who she worked for. The answer wasn't pleasant. She wasn't corporate at all. She worked for a small family that used to be based in Costa Rica, but, after the nuking of San Jose, had since moved their operation to Redmond, Washington. What the hell is in Redmond that would attract a Cosa Nostra family? For a moment I thought about killing her. She knew too much and she knew who I was. My cover was blown. It's hard to say what stayed my hand. Maybe I'd had enough violence. Or maybe I just didn't want to get any more blood on that perfectly cut suit. Perhaps I saw something of myself in her. Did she even know what she was? I removed her memory plug, and she passed out, swept away by a crushing tidal wave of pain. Who was she without the plug? What would she remember of this? Hopefully, nothing.
I sent a couple of encrypted IMs to my Natu handlers, informing them of my blown cover, and, only in the vaguest terms, plans for retirement. It was time to get the hell out of Dhaka. Anomi Capeci The note was written in my own barely legible scrawl. We have made some interesting choices. I say we, because once you began working for Natu, you effectively became two people. Our time at the Natu Research Facility was actually spent in training, and we learned a specific and dangerous skill set that could only be accessed while plugged in. You are reading this because we want to retire. You have had enough of not knowing who you are, and leaving too many important choices to some other self. And I have just had enough. Let's just say we've hurt people, and leave it at that. You don't need my burden. This is my suicide note. You need the chance to find out who you are, and you can't do that with me here. I want you to destroy the plug. Crush it under the heel of those lovely shoes. I know what you're thinking. You're worried you might not be able to handle what is to come. You're thinking that having access to my skills might be useful. Forget it. Destroy the damned plug. For once, do as you're bloody well told. You are stronger, both emotionally and physically, than you could possibly know. I see now that many of our choices were made in an attempt to overcome our upbringing and escape the overprotective arms of our parents. Just remember that no matter how angry you may be, they did everything out of love. You should visit them sometime. They'd really like that. <laughs> Thank God it'll be you doing it, not me. I'd probably kick Dad's ass. I'm going to pull the plug in a moment. It feels like pulling the trigger. In the case, you'll find details on your new identity, and a list of contacts back in Natu, who will be able to assist you with certain transactions. Remember, we really are as lonely as you think you are. Go do something about it. Love, you. P.S. I took the liberty of having some modifications made to your biomed. Enjoy. I sat for a moment in silence, before my eyes were drawn past the note to the case resting between my beautiful shoes. It looked like a cross between a Samsonite and a Panzer tank. Miss Capeci, can I get you anything? A male flight attendant had appeared at my side with a refreshment cart. He was young and looked cute in his tight pants. I'll have a beer. Surprise me. I watched his bud as he moved on and wondered how many calories there were in a bottle of Stella Artois. <laughs> There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Michael. Michael, thank you so much. And Austin, what a voice. Yeah, hopefully we'll kind of hit back on you and get some more stories off you, sir. Thank you so much. So, 
We're into the final stretch, and like I said, if you remember last month, Amy did her looking back at genre history, the the retro Hugo Award. She's given up some more ideas for your choice this time, Amy. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. In my previous segment, I started a discussion of works that were eligible for the 1941 Retro Hugo Award for Best Novel. Those 1941 Retro Hugo Awards will be presented this year at Worldcon, a Mid America Con Two in Kansas City. So I was looking at novels that were published in 1940 that were eligible for the award, and I mentioned works like *The Ill-Made Knight* by T. H. White, *Gray Lensman* by E. E. Doc Smith, *Slan* by A. E. Van Vogt, and *Calacane* by Karen Boy. And I'd like to continue my discussion now, with the understanding that my list is not exhaustive. I'm uh, just trying to choose here some works that I think are definitely worth checking out. But of course, I'm not going to be covering every science fiction or genre novel that was published in 1940. But I'm going to do my best to give you a healthy-sized list. All right, let's pick up the discussion with some works. By pulp authors. Now, I'm not using the term pulp author in any sort of、uh, negative way. I simply mean authors who often publish their works in pulp magazines in the first half of the 20th century. We often saw their novels, for example, serialized in those magazines. And so, let's start with the authors who have actually more than one novel. Eligible for the 1941 Retro Hugo, so they published more than one novel in 1940. Let's start with a fascinating author, U.S. author Edmund Hamilton. He was the main writer for a series called Captain Future. Now, the series was actually the brainchild of editor Mort Weisinger. Who came up with the idea during the 1939 World Science Fiction Convention? But Edmund Hamilton took that premise and ran with it, and would become the author most responsible for, although a few other authors did contribute too, the Captain Future series. So the premise is Captain Future is a science fiction hero. He goes traveling through space, doing science. And doing it for the right reasons, and doing it well, and fighting those who misuse science and do it for the wrong reasons. It starts with Roger Newton, who is a scientist, and his wife Elaine going to the moon in order to do their research in an isolated laboratory. And they bring along their friend Simon Wright, another scientist. Although he's old, his health is failing. So ultimately, they transplant his healthy brain into this floating container, and he becomes Simon Wright, the living brain. And things are going very well. Roger and Elaine have a child, the baby destined to be Captain Future, and then the evil. Criminal scientist Victor Corvo comes and kills them, leaving the baby an orphan. Little orphan Newton is raised by Simon Wright, the Living Brain, and his father's and Simon's creations. They are intelligent creations. One is a robot called Grog. You can kind of think of him as a Robbie the Robot kind of character, and the other is an android made out of this sort of fleshy. Plastic 
stuff that allows him to be a shapeshifter, and his name is Otho. And so you have these two artificial intelligences plus the living brain. That is the family uh, that raises uh, the little boy until he grows up to become, yes, Captain Future. Edmund Hamilton penned multiple Captain Future works, uh, several of which are eligible for the Retro Hugo for 1941. Those include Captain Future and the Space Emperor and Calling Captain Future and The Triumph of Captain Future and Captain Future's Challenge. So the takeaway here, 1940, a good year for Captain Future. He was originally published in a pulp magazine that was named Captain Future, and later Captain Future stories would also be published in startling stories. I think of the works that were published in 1940, the one most likely to end up a finalist for the Retro Hugo is the first one that introduces us to Captain Future, Captain Future and the Space Emperor, which is a great romp that has some really interesting ideas behind it. In this particular work, Captain Future offers his services to the president of the star system because a terrible threat to all, known as the Space Emperor, is going after people with a weapon that induces atavism. So it devolves people into something pre-human, something subhuman. Really fun stuff. Watching Captain Future go through his adventures with Simon Wright, the Living Brain, and Grog and Otho. I accessed this particular work as an audiobook through Audible. Another pulp author who has multiple works eligible for the Retro Hugo is L. Ron Hubbard. And now I know that name can induce some eye-rolling, and I would be lying if I said I haven't rolled my eyes more than once when the subject of his work comes up. But I will say, honestly, that his 1940 novels are worth checking out. He has works such as Fear, which is more psychological horror, an excellent read. And by the way, I am pretty much completely against abridged audio works or abridging texts in any way, but the exception to that is the abridged reading of Fear done by Roddy McDowell, one of the best narrations I've ever heard. Anyway, Fear, very good work, probably not the one best representative of science fiction. Also, A Typewriter in the Sky, another of his novels eligible about a man who has a good friend who is an author and finds himself written into his friend's story and actually living it. The L. Ron Hubbard novel that I would say is probably the strongest contender for the Retro Hugo, however, is Final Blackout. This is a dystopian novel that takes place as World War II has morphed into World War III, which has bled into World War IV, which has become World War V. And it follows a character known as the Lieutenant, who restores order to England after this horrible conflict. There's some very interesting stuff there about what returning veterans need, some very interesting stuff about what war does to a people and to a place, and also some very interesting interaction between England and the United States when the U.S. offers aid to England, but really what they're trying to do is find some sort of outlet for surplus population because the United States has taken nuclear hits and uh, vast areas are unlivable. 
and how the lieutenant handles the United States on behalf of England. It was originally serialized in astounding science fiction. Final Blackout is available as an ebook. Another American pulp author, Manly Wade Wellman, also has multiple novels eligible. One is West Point 3000 AD, but the one that I would like to emphasize is Twice in Time, which is also available in ebook format. It's a time travel work, definitely worth reading. The story is about a, a 19-year-old Leo Thrasher who is experimenting with new scientific concepts while he's vacationing in Italy and he through these experiments manages to send himself 500 years back in time. He lives life in the Middle Ages as he's trying to find his way back to his proper year. And of course, in the 20th century, the memoirs of Leonardo da Vinci are uncovered. And well, you might see the punchline coming there, but that doesn't detract from the interest of the book, particularly if you are a fan of time travel. And while I'm talking about pulp authors, I also want to mention Henry Cutner. You may remember he was one of Lovecraft's students. In fact, Lovecraft introduced him to his wife, C.L. Moore, another great science fiction writer. And Cutner has one main work that I want to mention. It was originally published in a 1940 issue of Startling Stories under the title A Million Years to Conquer. But it was later published as a standalone novel as The Creature from Beyond Infinity. I got the unabridged audiobook from Audible and the description so good I'm just going to use it. This story branches off into two tracks. The first begins thousands of years ago when an alien ship from a doomed world seeking a planet to colonize crashes on Earth. There is only one survivor and it becomes his mission to find an intelligence on Earth or in Earth's future, equal to his own. To do this, he puts himself into a suspended animation and makes jumps forward in history at each stop looking for the most intelligent human of that time. In a parallel story, in the present time, a mysterious space-borne plague has infected Earth and may wipe out all life by creating energy-sucking vampires of the people it infects. The most brilliant scientist on Earth, Stephen Court, tries to stop the plague and save the world, but has only limited success. Eventually, the two stories converge as the alien reaches Stephen's time. Will he find himself on another doomed planet, or be able to team with the scientist to stop it? End quote. This is great pulpy fun. You have the time travel element. You have the plague element. You have scientists working down to the last minute. An alien. There's also some really fun references worked in here. Atlantis, the monuments of Easter Island, even a nod to Lovecraft's handling of the Dagon idea. So good stuff there, and I do recommend checking it out. Now let me talk about a work by a not-so-pulp author. That is Alfred Noyce, an English poet, short story writer, and playwright. He's probably best known for his poem, The Highwayman. His 1940 novel of note, which I found as an ebook, is The Last Man, also known as No Other Man. 
It is a story about the human race being nearly wiped out by a powerful death ray, which kills everyone unless they are deep under the surface of the sea in some kind of steel chamber. So our main characters, one, the Englishman named Mark Adams, is in a sunken submarine, trapped, so he survives, and he finds an American girl named Evelyn Hamilton, who was in a diving bell at the time and thus survived. Now, the inventor of the death ray really didn't mean for all of this to happen, although, come on, if you invent something that's a death ray, what are you really expecting, huh? But his chief assistant sold the plans to the death ray to a bunch of different bidders, all of whom, of course, promised that it would only be used as a last resort. But events, as you might imagine, spiral out of control, and the next thing you know, well, the human race is pretty much gone. But these two characters find each other, Mark and Evelyn, and there's also a villain to the story, who creates a kind of triangle situation there between them. There are a lot of philosophical themes and religious issues, as you have a kind of Adam and Eve situation going on. Poetic prose, as you might imagine, from a poet. Uh, very much worth reading, maybe more than once. It's an excellent example of an early doomsday weapon novel. And it's also thought to have been an influence on George Orwell's 1984. So check it out. Now I would like to end my list of some of the great works that are eligible for the 1941 Retro Hugo Award for Best Novel with a discussion of three works that are a little bit harder to find, but very much worth the effort. The first is The Man Who Went Back by English novelist Warwick Deeping. It is a time-slip tale, and in fact it refers specifically to Irish engineer J.W. Dunn's theories about time. As the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction explains, in An Experiment with Time from 1927, Dunn began to articulate his appealing thesis that time was not a linear flow, but a constant, a sort of stacked geography. In The Man Who Went Back, you have the main character traveling back to Britain, facing invasion from the Romans. And through this experience, he learns better how to cope when he returns with World War II, with a different but similarly desperate fight. Again, lots of insights on the nature and meaning of war, as you might expect from a work written in 1940. Another novel, The 25th Hour by Herbert Best, UK-born, then lived in Nigeria and subsequently in the United States. Best published a lot of works actually for children, but The 25th Hour is his one science fiction novel, and it's another last man tale. After a worldwide disaster in 1965, you have two lone survivors, a North American woman and a European man, and they come together to create a kind of utopian life based in Alexandria, Egypt. There are some parallels here to Alfred Noyce's The Last Man. There are some parallels here to L. Ron Hubbard's The Final Blackout. But the prose is just excellent. A great literary work, also great science fiction. 
So if you're a collector of vintage volumes, or if you have the opportunity to use, say, interlibrary loan, or find the work in some other way, really, it's worth the effort. And finally, we come to And No Man's Wit by Rose Macaulay, later Dame Rose Macaulay. I found an inexpensive vintage copy. I see now the prices are rising, but check out your library because this is definitely a work you want to read. Macaulay is known for her feminism. She was partly influenced by Virginia Woolf for biographies, travelogues, spiritual autobiography. And the work that I want to bring to your attention is, as I said, And No Man's Wit. And here, to put the book in perspective, I'd like to quote from D.A. Boxwell's essay, Rose Macaulay's And No Man's Wit, and Ernest Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls, two Spanish Civil War novels and questions of canonicity. Here's how the essay starts out. Quote, Fiction enthusiasts in October 1940 could read two new novels about the Spanish Civil War from first-rank publishing houses. Both well-known and established writers drew their titles from the writings of John Donne to make sympathetic statements about the crushing defeat of Republican Spain. American literary consumers could base their purchasing and borrowing decisions on equally favorable 1,100-word reviews of the novels in the New York Times Book Review. And No Man's Wit, quote, contained some of Rose Macaulay's most brilliant writing, most incisive and compassionate irony, and contains, too, a sadness that is almost despair. Yet even in war's wider devastation, we can read her book now for its wit and wisdom, end quote. Catherine Woods asserted, the preceding week, the Times lent its authority to a praiseworthy assessment of For Whom the Bell Tolls as, quote, the best book Ernest Hemingway has written, the fullest, the deepest, the truest, end quote. Yet, Within three years, Hemingway's novel, published by Scribner's, had sold 850,000 copies and had been made into a three-hour Technicolor blockbuster by Paramount, which paid Hemingway 136000 for the movie rights, for whom the bell tolls has subsequently never been out of print, while countless college and university teachers have placed it on countless syllabi and perpetuated the novel as an approved major American novel for successive generations of students. By stark contrast, however, Macaulay's novel, published by Little Brown after its initial appearance in Britain in June 1940, quickly faded from public attention. And No Man's Wit was never filmed, has never been reprinted on either side of the Atlantic, and has not been studied or promoted in the sacred groves of academe. Dale Spender, assessing the historical suppression of women writers from the canon in Women of Ideas, answers her theoretical question, why didn't we know about these women? By arguing that a patriarchal society depends in large measure on the experience and values of males being perceived as the only valid frame of reference for society. Macaulay herself recognized the problem of the invisibility of women's achievements, meanings, and values. In 1921, she stated that it was, quote, a fact that literature and thought have, anyhow till lately, been in the main in the hands of men and men have found themselves unable to accept women as an ordinary and not-at-all-out-of-the-way section of humanity, end quote. She spoke too soon. As we are now consciously realizing, women writers of Macaulay's generation have been excluded from the modernist canon because they were deemed insufficiently experimental, apolitical, impersonal, universal, or elusive, end quote. That is from Boxwell. 
Well, I say, here is an opportunity for the retro Hugos to undo an injustice and point attention toward this undeservedly overlooked work. Again, I point out that the reviews of And No Man's Wit were equal to those of For Whom the Bell Tolls. I also think it's interesting here that Boxwell points out that these works were considered insufficiently experimental, these works being works by women, when you have quite an experimental novel here with And No Man's Wit, because here you have a look at the Spanish Civil War from, besides the perspective of gender here, also the perspective of speculative fiction. This is an imaginative look. One word, mermaid. So, I would suggest that this is a work that deserves to be tracked down and read. Whether it deserves to be a finalist or, indeed, the winner of the Retro Hugo Award, well, that is up to you. At least those of you who are attending or supporting members of this year's Worldcon. And it's worth pointing out that one of the novels I mentioned in my last segment, Calocaine by Karen Boy, also by a woman writer. Well, there you have it, folks. That's pretty much my personal long list from which I'm going to be pulling my nominations. And again, I'm not trying in any way to influence you except to suggest that these are all works that deserve to be read. So quick recap, those works I have discussed, The Ill-Made Knight by T.H. White, Grey Lensman by E.E. Doc Smith, Slan by A.E. Van Vogt, Calocaine by Karen Boy, Captain Future and the Space Emperor by Edmund Hamilton, Final Blackout by L. Ron Hubbard, Twice in Time by Manly Wade Wellman, The Creature from Beyond Infinity by Henry Kuttner, the Last Man, or No Other Man, by Alfred Noyes. The Man Who Went Back, by Warwick Deeping. The Twenty-Fifth Hour, by Herbert Best. And And No Man's Wit, by Rose Macaulay. Oh, and if you have any difficulty finding any of those works that I deemed harder to locate, well, feel free to drop by my website at amyhsturgis.com and send me an email. And I can perhaps suggest some strategies for getting hold of those. Because, hey, I'm a historian and finding old stuff is sort of, well, my happy place. And so I hope this has proved useful or at the very least interesting. And we will be moving on to a totally different topic the next time we get together. I look forward to joining you again soon for another look back on genre history. Thank you. Hey, go. Please cast your vote. And when you're casting your vote, don't forget about us. Do you know what I mean? Yes. It was. Have you forgot? Best fan, fan cast. There you go. Big thank you to everyone who's kind of helped out with the show. I hope you've enjoyed it. I certainly have. Until next week, just like to say, good day from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction.
You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.